Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. If things go as badly as they are going for Sunak, then by the weekend papers, we could see some pretty sleazy stuff. It's quite painful for people who've sort of worked alongside each other for a long time, who are now sometimes taking lumps out of each other. Do you think he's run too early to become prime minister? Couldn't he have waited on the backbenches for a bit longer? It's a case of too little too late from him. Five more weeks to go, but I think Liz Truss has already won it. We have and welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Well, Alison, you go away for a couple of weeks and it all kicks off. No sooner had you packed your bucket and spade for a fortnight in the sun... And the Tories, shorn of your guiding influence, your all-encompassing wisdom, decide to engage in a gloves-off, full-contact leadership battle. Then they get rid of your preferred candidate. It's great to have you back on these shores, Alison. Although I should add that throughout your summer break, given what's been happening, you kept up a steady stream of poolside newspaper commentary. And in this week's paper, having dispensed with Penny Mordaunt and now offering Conservative members a choice between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss... You've concluded the Tories have a death wish and a heading for a thumping election defeat. But guess what, co-pilot? The Russians are upping the ante, turning off the gas taps, plunging Western Europe into pretty much inevitable recession. And the cost of living crisis is now biting, with millions of families struggling to buy the basics. But it's OK, because the Conservative Party, our entire political and media class, in fact, is fixated on Liz's earrings and the cost of Rishi Sunak's shoes. It's good to have you back, Alison. Are you pleased to be home? The tan lines are fading fast, Halligan. <laughs> I tell you what's most worried me is forget Liz Truss's 499 earrings from Claire's Accessories, the shop for nine-year-old girls. Liz has got the same necklace as me, and that's, that, that is like, <laughs> slightly bothering that's me. That's going to need to change before she goes into number 10. That is, that is, yeah, and it certainly didn't cost four ninety nine. Pearson's not having it. It's all been a bit ridiculous, hasn't it, that whole who's got the cheaper thing, but it has descended quite rapidly, hasn't it, Liam? It's not been a very edifying contest. So where are we? I guess I'd say so much for a fresh start. As you said, Tory MPs have voted Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak into the final two, although polls previously suggested that neither Trust nor Sunak was the favourite of Tory party members. In fact, Kemi Badenoch and Penny Mordaunt had an overwhelming lead over both Trust and Sunak with the grassroots. It has been suggested, co-pilot, I should say, that Team Sunak fancied their chances 
of beating Truss rather than the others. So they lent votes to the Truss camp to get her through into the final two among Tory MPs. Well, you may say that I couldn't possibly comment. So anyway, Team Sudak, yes, got the opponent it wanted, the somewhat wooden Liz Trust. And it's all gone terribly wrong, co-pilot, hasn't it? So in the BBC debate on Monday, Trust have been quite poor in the previous Channel 4 debate, not distinguished herself, but in the BBC debate, she certainly exceeded expectations. Rishi, who was 24 points behind her in a poll of Conservative members went on the attack. He didn't give Liz a chance to speak, interrupting her 22 times, came across as some smart aleck in a public school debating society. And what he did, Liam, is he he allowed Liz Truss to stand there, icily resplendent in Thatcher blue, looking statesmanlike by comparison. So that was a bit of a car crash. And then also on policy, which I, I read your Sunday Telegraph column with great pleasure on this. So Liz Truss has also really left Sunak behind on policy. She's promising to reverse his increase in national insurance, says she'll temporarily lift the green levies on the cost of fuel, a policy you know, co-pilot, we've been championing here on Planet Normal. And meanwhile, Rishi Sunak has taken the hair-shirt approach, no tax cuts to relieve the cost of living crisis because that would be comforting fairy tales, unconservative And immoral. And guess what? Tory members prefer fairy tales to being told to eat up their sprouts. And that (laughs) led to a screeching U-turn on Wednesday when Sunak suddenly announced he would cut VAT on energy bills. Another planet normal policy. But as of this week, the energy price cap is predicted to go up to a horrifying £3,420 in October. And Rishi's VAT cut equals about 160 quid of that. So I'm suggesting to you, co-pilot, it's a case of too little, too late from him. Five more weeks to go. But I think Liz Truss has already won it even though there's not a huge amount of enthusiasm for either her or Rishi. But barring any dirty tricks from Gavin Williamson's dirty tricks basket, Liz Truss <laughs> will be our new Prime Minister. What say you? I should put on record, Alison, not to undermine the jollity of your return to the UK, but I'm now officially very concerned about energy prices this autumn and into next year. I've looked at some estimates from within the energy industry that point to energy bills on average going above £4,000 a year, not just above £3,000, above £4,000 a year. Mm, Crikey. Unless there is a big change on wholesale energy markets. The geopolitics of this at the moment is awful. We should mention that this is the week when the Russians have cutbacks Quite significantly now, the amount of gas that's pumped to Germany, we so often hear from our political and media class, oh, it doesn't matter, we're not dependent on Russian gas. We are in a global market for gas, and what's happening between Russia and Germany impacts gas prices everywhere, and we have to deal with those elevated gas prices. So I am concerned about that. I think we should be talking much more as a media class, about what's going to happen this winter. There is the possibility, I would say, of even proper fuel shortages, even outages Mm. in the worst scenario. And I want to see ministers and officials 
preparing for this. I want to see them firing up alternative sources of energy. We need to start talking about this now while the weather's warm so we can deal with the situation when the weather cools. Having said all that, of course, the identity of the next prime minister is of huge and legitimate interest. I know you were disappointed. We were in touch a fair bit when you were away on holiday when Penny Morden was dispensed with from this race. What do you think it is that Penny Morden or indeed Kemi Badenoch, candidates that we both know well, could have done more to appeal not just to the MP selectorates or the Tory activists out there in the country, but the electorate that really matters, the electorate of the entire voting population. That's right, Liam. You know, I think these Tory MPs, I think they're very complacent about their seats. I don't think they've got much idea of what's coming. The situation you've just outlined of real hardship, you know, food banks every night on the news, people in dire straits. Most of them have herded in behind Rishi, haven't they? It's all about what job am I going to get, ministerial preferment. I think they're absolutely kidding themselves. So in backing Penny Mordant, I was trying to look forward a few steps ahead to what I see as prospective annihilation in a general election in 2024. That will be the 14th year of Conservatives being in power. They badly need a reset, a refresh. So I can foresee lots of so-called safe Tory seats falling to the Lib Dem. So I was trying to think of an attractive, centrist performer, someone like Penny Mordaunt from a very ordinary background, someone who could appeal to younger people. It was very interesting when I was on holiday in Turkey that some of the the younger people in their 20s, they were like the idea of Penny. Women, Liam, have been deserting the Conservative Party in droves. I certainly felt that I could see some of my new Labour type friends giving Penny a go. Certainly can't see them giving Liz Truss a go. Absolutely not. But as you know, Penny was accused of holding the incorrect views on trans, of not knowing what a woman is, of being appallingly woke. So her campaign took a serious knock. Even despite that, she was still only eight votes behind Liz Truss in the final ballot. And as an at the outsider, from a standing start, was able to command a third of the parliamentary party. I think it's a great shame because I think the trans stuff absolutely obliterated any consideration of the very sensible conservative policies that Penny's team were putting forward, including cutting VAT on fuel by 50% and so on. So it's quite hard to explain, Liam. I would say my own personal politics are closer to Kemi Badenoch and Suella Braverman's, but I was trying to think about the broad consensus, the Tories are going to need every damn vote they can get in 2024. And if they choose someone who sort of tickles their ideological fancy, someone like Liz Truss, well, that's great. You know, let's see how she fares with the wider electorate. My own view is it won't be very well. I think that's right. You and I talked a lot, didn't we, before you wrote a column backing Penny Morden? Yeah. Joking aside, your backing is important for any would-be Tory leader, given 
the reach of your column and the Telegraph more broadly, of mm. course. Not that you speak for the paper, you don't. You speak for yourself. But it is a big deal that you back Penny Morden. And I think you're, you were right in the sense that she would have had a good chance coming into the next election with the broader public, not least younger people. There does seem to have been some black arts going on in terms of squeezing her out of the final two. I wanted to ask you also, Alison, for your view about Rishi Sunak. It does strike me that his lack of political experience is coming to the fore. His U-turn on VAT on fuel, he's managed to do it at the worst possible time (laughs) in terms of his own chances under enormous pressure. And I think for all his obvious intelligence, you know, he's got a lot to learn about frontline politics, it strikes me. And And I say that as somebody who's, you know, got a lot of respect for him as a thinker in general. Do you think he's run too early to become... Prime Minister. Couldn't he have waited on the backbenches or, or, or within government for a bit longer? He's very young. He's in his early 40s. I mean, what I suspect may happen here now, and maybe he proved me wrong, but unless he gets the top job, and it looks as if he's not going to get the top job, it might be that he just you know disappears from politics and goes to live in Silicon Valley or something. Yeah, I think he'll be having... Um barbecues with uh, Harry and Meghan, won't he, in Montecito? Probably end up as the CEO of some digital tech company, won't he? I think when they looked at the numbers, he should have stood aside and let the girls slug it out, really. I think I think it was, for me, it was always going to be a woman. I just had a f- strong feeling that the we'd have our third female prime minister. I don't think it was his time. I mean, of course, he's incredibly clever. He was the head boy of Winchester. You know, he has come from an immigrant background and has achieved so much. I think he's also, by all accounts, a very decent and sweet guy. But I don't know if you noticed in one of the debates when they had a single mum from Stoke-on-Trent in the audience, and she was saying she was already very worried about her energy bills. And uh, Rishi Sunak actually was talking about insulation, Halligan, insulation, because that would save her 300 quid or something. And you could see this poor woman thinking lagging wasn't really the immediate help she was looking for to keep the wolf from the door. So I think for all the slickness of that campaign, there's obviously a huge amount of money gone into it. I'm afraid I do think, and we have said this before, Lim, haven't we, that every time I see you know, the multimillionaire Rishi Sudak and his heiress wife. I mean, we're going into this absolutely cataclysmic cost of living crisis. And to have a man sort of saying, well, I can't help you out now because that'll mean mortgages will go up or stoke this or stoke that. I just think it feels so wrong and so implausible. Now, that may be unfair and it's not his fault. He's been hugely successful and married into a billionaire's family. But there we are. It just feels wrong. And will he stay in for the five weeks? I think he'll be not just beaten, but beaten badly. I strongly suspect that he would get even a lower share of the vote than Jeremy Hunt got against Boris. That was a third, two-thirds Hunt and Johnson with the Tory activists. Do you think it could go lower than that? Yes, I do. But I think what we're seeing is what we so often see in British life, I'm afraid. There is an elite and predominantly a Remainer elite, which is backing Rishi and which is determined to get him the job at any price, basically. And so you see a newspaper like The Times, which has decided that no other candidate will do. Anyone who supports any other candidate is an idiot. There have been 
dreadful, disparaging pieces, not just about Penny Mordaunt, implications that any of Rishi's rivals, dim, work shy, you know, just you name it, sneering at Penny because she was once a conjurer's assistant. I mean, just despicable snobbery, really. And I think these people think they can engineer it. I think they think it's within their gift to arrange who becomes the leader of the country. And they have run up against the Conservative Party members who don't share those values. They very, very much don't share those values. So I have to say, I think there's there's a slight chuckle. I feel a slight chuckle coming on when, when I think of them having arranged for Rishi to be up against Liz Truss and Liz Truss going to crush him, which I think she will. I should say, by the way, I have heard this week that Gavin Williamson, who... Planet Normal will never refer to Gavin Williamson as Sir Gavin Williamson for obvious reasons. Uh, we're not going to be giving the nobility. His doesn't extend beyond the Earth's atmosphere. <laughs> it doesn't. The title doesn't. The title has no purchase out here on the rocket. But Gavin Williamson, of course, famous with his tarantula for cheerfully manipulating competitions. And I think they have got some dirty dossier on Liz Truss, who's had quite a lively personal life. And I'd be interested to see if they'll deploy it, Liam. I'll be really interested to see if they will sink that low. If things go as badly as they are going for Sunak, then by the weekend papers, we could see some pretty sleazy stuff. What do you think, Copilot? I think that would be really bad for the Conservative Party in general. And I think a lot of Tory activists would dig in even more and say, no, we really don't want this candidate. We want the other candidate. So I think it would be completely counterproductive, not least to say entirely immoral, of course. I think one thing we have to discuss is what the current Prime Minister is doing and what he might do in the future. (laughs) Our colleague... Chris Hope, of course, has been reporting assiduously and with authority on what a lot of the Tory activists are thinking. He has. And if he doesn't become Secretary General of NATO, there are a lot of Conservative voters out there who want Boris Johnson to come back for him to be on the ballot that the Tory activists can select from. Is that remotely possible? I think given the prevailing madness, I think that does seem crazy. But, you know, we can't rule it out, can we? I do think the Build Back (laughs) Boris campaign is richly enjoyable. You know, it's been really making me laugh. I know you shouldn't laugh, but Boris, of course, bless him, is using his final weeks as Prime Minister to run through what looks very much like a nine-year-old boy's bucket list. So he's been the pilot in a typhoon. I don't know if you saw that. And then this week, he's been on training manoeuvres with Ukrainian soldiers, basically touting sort of machine guns and chucking hand grenades. So what's going to be next? Sort of dancing with dolphins or lunch with Jennifer Aniston. I mean, he certainly seems to be enjoying himself and ticking off. I suspect he's secretly quite pleased that the way the competition is going. You're right, Liam. I don't think it's an overwhelming number of members who would want Boris back, but it's certainly a vocal minority. And with the way things are going, with the lack of popularity, we're talking about how popular Truss and Sunak are with the MPs and with the members, but very soon it'll become apparent how popular or unpopular they are with the electorate. And I think that's when 
Boris coming back will be on the agenda. My own sense is that the next 18 months is going to be absolutely brutal for whoever wins. You know, as we discussed earlier, completely dreadful, quite possible that the lights will go out, the radiators will will certainly be switching off. So it's going to be a terrible time. I wouldn't rule out the idea that in 18 months, that if the Conservatives were panicking about the polls, that they could hold another snap leadership election. Again, we are facing a really tough time, I think. Neither of us remotely want to be alarmist, but it is clear that the cost of living squeeze is going to get a lot tighter before it gets looser. And these kind of summer days of jolly japes and, and talking about the Tory leadership may look pretty indulgent in just a few weeks' time as the weather starts to get colder and the nights draw in. I think that's true. And for that reason, I think it's absolutely crucial the Tories are seen to be clinical and professional in terms of this leadership election, at least from here in on. It may be that Rishi Sunak stands down so he doesn't get absolutely pummeled. If he wants to stay in politics, I suspect that's probably what he should do. And he can magnanimously concede and then make sure he's in a trust government with no hard feelings. He should be in the government. He's a really clever guy. Whatever mistakes he's made politically in recent weeks, and I think he's made several, he should be in the government. And I think he would be a kind of seething presence on the back benches if he wasn't. But as life gets more difficult, as the economy turns south, there's now very widespread prospect of recession in the eurozone. And whatever we think of the eurozone, it remains massively important to our trade. What's happening in Italy with political turmoil, what's happening with the European Central Bank raising interest rates, skittishness on eurozone bond markets, you know, stuff that sounds really nerdy, but is really important. All of that will impact the UK. As we speak, the Federal Reserve is on the cusp of raising interest rates quite sharply. We'll see what happens here. So for all these reasons, the Tories have to get their political house in order. And I think it's absolutely vital that quickly they get a grip of their policy offer. As the Bank of England raise interest rates, which it must to lean into inflation, I think they need to go for lower taxes, more pro-enterprise policies, particularly helping those small and medium-sized enterprises that drive our economy forward and account for such a high proportion of our employment. It's absolutely nuts to raise corporation tax from 19 to 25%. You're going to get less money in if you do that. If you keep corporation tax where it is and you encourage growth, then you're going to get more money in. Rishi Sunak doesn't seem to get that. He is a captive of linear, static treasury thinking. And I'm glad that for all the excesses of this leadership debate, at least we've tackled that issue and those ideas are being aired that you can actually promote enterprise with lower taxes. That's something that's gone out of our political debate in recent months and years. But I sincerely hope that the Trust administration, I mean, who will be our Chancellor? I suspect it might be Kwasi Kwarteng, the current Business Secretary, I think has been quite an impressive Business Secretary. He is a smart guy who understands business and enterprise. They have to get a good offer on the table quickly to try and keep this economy moving. Because if we don't keep the economy moving during these difficult months to come, then our politics is going to get a lot more nasty. 
So I've been delighted to see Liz Truss's economic offer overlapping with the views of my learned co-pilot. Uncanny, you might think she'd been listening to Planet Normal even. I agree with you, Liam. I think that the composition of the Trust Cabinet is going to be absolutely vital. We do know she's had a key supporter in Lord Frost, David Frost. I hope that she would give him a prominent role because I think he's totally sound. I think it would make good sense to have Kemi Badenoch possibly at education because she's a great fighter in the culture wars, maybe even Home Secretary, possibly keeping Suella Braverman, who also did very well as Attorney General. I think Therese Coffey, who's been running the Trust campaign, will be in for a good cabinet job. She's a good Secretary of State, by the way, Therese Coffey. I must say, Alison, as Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, she's done a really tough job, quietly, but well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that Ben Wallace is most likely to stay at defence with the Ukraine situation going on. He's been very good. Chancellor, I think I might disagree with you. I mean, I know John Redwood has been, you know, you might think he's slightly too strong meat, but Jacob Rees-Mogg has also been backing trust. It's possible that he could go in there. I think it will make a huge difference if she has a really appealing team around her. But these tax cuts, Liam, that she's talking about, they will lead to higher mortgage rates, won't they? It depends. Look, we definitely need to raise interest rates to tackle inflation. And we need to raise interest rates anyway, Alison. Interest rates are massively negative when you look at where inflation is. An economy doesn't work when interest rates are 1% or 2%. There's no return on savings. It distorts the whole economy. It leads to badly made investment decisions. This is a historic anomaly as we failed to release ourselves, spring from the grip of the global financial crisis of 2008-9. So we do need to raise interest rates. We do need to understand that capital is allocated better when interest rates are higher than inflation. That's just how it is. But you're not going to, I think Sunak's wrong on this, you're not going to provoke inflation if you do things like lower VAT on fuel bills when people are struggling to pay. What generates inflation isn't necessarily putting a bit more money in people's pockets. What generates inflation is massive credit expansion, is you know massive quantitative easing, which we've seen. So I think Sunak has been over-egging his concerns about a little bit more borrowing at a time when, believe it or not, there's quite a lot of fiscal headroom in the sense that those OBR estimates, those Office for Budget Responsibility estimates that were made in March 2021 ahead of his last budget, they turned out to be far more pessimistic than we thought they were going to be. They're out by tens of billions of pounds. So this is a time, I think, when you can lower taxes in order to boost the demand side of the economy, when retail sales are flagging, when investment is flagging, without provoking lots and lots of of inflation. So I think there's a false dichotomy here. And I think Liz Truss, she's listened to some really good economists, I must say, she's got it roughly right. I thought it did make me laugh in one of the debates when Rishi accused her of having been part of Project Fear as a Remainer. And she said, well, that's when I learned how bad uh, Treasury forecasts were. And I thought, great reply. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. 
just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Another person, Liam, I think would be a very good contender for Chancellor Exchequer, but is unlikely to get it this time for obvious reasons, is Dame Andrea Leadsom, our highly topical guest on The Rocket this week. Andrea Leadsom became the Conservative MP for South Northamptonshire in 2010, after 25 years working in the banking and finance industry. Between 2014 and 2020, Andrea served in government as Economic Secretary to the Treasury, Minister of State at the Department of Energy, Secretary of State for the Environment, and of course she was leader of the House of Commons during the turbulent attempt to get Brexit through a Remainer Parliament. You may recall, co-pilot, that charming speaker John Burkow famously called her that stupid woman. I first met Andrea back in 2016 when she reached the final two in the contest for the Conservative leader and Prime Minister. On that very day that I met Andrea, certain dark forces orchestrated what I see as a hit job against the Brexiteer Leadsom, ushering in the disastrous tenure of Theresa May, who called a general election and failed to gain a majority, making getting Brexit done even harder. In her fascinating new book, Snakes and Ladders, Navigating the Ups and Downs of Politics, Andrea Leadsom gives readers a ringside view of that remarkable and bruising period in British political history. Recently, Andrea has headed up Penny Mordaunt's campaign to become Tory leader and Prime Minister, encountering some of the same dark arts which stymied her own bid. So I began by asking Andrea Leadsom what was her view on how this present Conservative leadership race is being conducted? It's always very fraught. And I guess, as I say in the book, it's right that people are tested. You know, if you're wanting to be the prime minister of the greatest country on earth, then people are going to want to know if you can take the flak and if you're up to the job and they want to test that you are consistent and coherent. So in a way, that's quite right. But obviously, it's quite painful for people who've sort of worked alongside each other for a long time, who are now sometimes taking lumps out of each other. The last time I interviewed you was in similar but very difficult circumstances, wasn't it? You were yourself running to be Prime Minister and leader and you were doing very, very well in that contest. It was 2016. I'd come to meet you at Milton Keynes Railway Station to interview you in the coffee shop. You were riding high. Before me, you'd been interviewed by Rachel Sylvester of The Times. I think you'd been very candid and cheerful with her, as you always are. And then, lo and behold, a very disobliging story appeared which painted you as someone who felt that being a mother made you superior to Theresa May, who didn't have children, and that then all went wrong very, very quickly. I mean, in the book, you write about that and about how shocked you were, particularly by the dark arts. How would you reflect on that now, Andrea? 
frankly, I take it on the chin. You know, I was incredibly naive, you know, to meet it, as you say, Alison, in a coffee shop where there were lots of coffee drinkers coming over to say, hello, are you Andrea? That's something that wasn't conducive (laughs) to focus. And of course, I was on my own, very, very tired. But, you know, I should have been much, much more alert. I should have realized the terms of the interview. And I should have uh, been much more on my guard. And I felt terrible for Teresa because, in effect, it was also potentially upsetting for her. So it, it was it was horrible. But, Alison, as I say in the book, that was not the reason I withdrew. The reason I withdrew was very clearly because Teresa had more than two-thirds of Conservative MPs behind her. And we were faced with a nine-week leadership challenge at a time when sterling was dropping, stock markets were jittering, people wanted to move on from the referendum. And it seemed to me with, you know, potential Conservative MPs threatening to resign the whip to no confidence me on day one, it seemed that, you know, if I went ahead with this campaign and, you know, should I be so fortunate as to win, then we could be in even more turmoil. So that was the decision to withdraw. It certainly wasn't around that interview. But you're being a little bit disingenuous, Andrea, aren't you, really? Because you were a prominent Brexiteer. Theresa May was a Remainer who was supposed to be delivering Brexit. Uh, the Times was and is a very ardent Remainer newspaper. So there is an element, isn't there, of the media doing over the candidates that they don't approve of? Yes, you're absolutely right. I, I'm certainly not letting the media off. You know, they different newspapers have their own views. That interview of me back in 2016 was very clearly designed to try and catch me out. And um, and they well and truly did. Soon afterwards, I got a phone call from a journalist who was a Brexiteer saying the next thing they're going to uh, put into your mouth is that Theresa May can't be Prime Minister because she's diabetic. And I said, well, they'll never get me on that because my husband's diabetic. And this journalist said, don't be so sure. So I certainly think that journalists need to look at themselves very carefully in the mirror when they're considering who to back and in particular, how to spin what people say. I've been very taken aback because, as you know, for strong reasons, I've been very supportive of Penny Mordaunt. And you were absolutely a leader of Penny's campaign. She was doing spectacularly well as the outsider until the last but one round. What went wrong, Andrea? Well, I mean, exactly as you say, Penny is a really capable, competent woman of great integrity, broad government experience, as well as huge experience outside government. As you say, Alison, she was doing a fantastic job. But the issue, of course, is that when you are the kind of outsider, the one that people don't know so well, is the need to really hit the ground running. And we absolutely were firing on all cylinders. We had fantastic support from some really good members of parliament and think tanks and so on. But, you know, others in the race had much more support through their spads, etc., through their own contacts. And so, as ever, the big lesson for me, as I write in my book, is that if you are wanting to stand for prime minister, you absolutely have to prepare for it a year at least in advance. So I do say those who sort of criticise colleagues for preparing their campaigns a while back, you literally can't do it unless you start doing the work. So for Penny, I think what went wrong was potentially not being far enough prepared when it all became live. But also, as we all saw, there was tremendous black ops, as we call it, against Penny. There were people determined to 
tie her down in trying to justify things, which, you know, is what happened to me in 2016. You know, when you are the outsider, there are people who will stop at nothing to try and tie you up in knots. So I've met her a few times. You're obviously a close friend. She's attacked for her view on trans, for not being able to say what a woman was, for being much too woke. As the mother of a daughter, Andrea, do you, you know, was that any of, any of that an issue to you? No, I mean, I, I know the truth of it. You know, Penny, she's a Royal Naval Reservist. She trains with men two weeks out on the moors. And she, she's used to coming last and carrying less weight. She knows exactly what a woman is. And all of this stitch up, I was perfectly comfortable. And in fact, I was saying to some of our colleagues, look, I would not be backing somebody who didn't know what a woman was, who wasn't standing up for women's rights. And of course, children's rights, because we also have this really concerning issue where very, very young children are being encouraged to think of themselves as having gender dysmorphia or being in the wrong body. And that is very, very harmful. Child protection is absolutely crucial. And Penny knows that. I've been told by a number of quite prominent people that the Rishi Sunak team far preferred to be up against Liz Truss because they thought that he had a better chance of beating her than beating Penny and that there could have been some exchanging of votes to get the right person into the candidacy, into the final two. Does that go on? Do you know, that is a really hard question to answer. So back in 2016, when I was in the final two, I had 84 votes to Theresa's 199. In this contest just gone... They were so close in votes. So I would say it would have been madness for any candidate to lend votes to another candidate because that is too close to call. And so I would doubt it, but it's always possible. And certainly I also heard the rumours that Rishi would rather face Liz than Penny. But, you know, those rumours always abound in any leadership contest. And, and I think sometimes people just say those things to try and influence the vote without necessarily actually having a game plan. You know, there's this feeling in the country that we're somehow in this big game of chess and we're sitting there plotting every move six steps in advance, when in reality, it's much more about snakes and ladders. So you're rolling the dice, you're seeing where the dice land, and then you're dealing with what happens next. So you can be up a ladder one time and then all the way back down to the bottom of the board. And so I think it's much more a a case of being in the right place at the right time than it is in sort of trying to plan several moves ahead. Can I ask you who you're going to vote for, Truss or Sunak? And do you think it's a missed opportunity for the Conservative Party? I mean, as to who I'm going to vote for, I'm not yet certain for anyone yet. I'm talking every day with Penny about who is the right person. I mean, we had a very strong policy manifesto, which all of us in Penny's campaign team were absolutely bought into, of economic growth and no big tax cut promises or spending pledges other than those that were to help families and small businesses with the cost of living. So what we're sort of trying to see is who who's most closely aligned to that. And at the moment, you know, neither are particularly emulating what we were doing with a strong, strong focus on delivering economic growth. So I'm undecided. That's the honest truth. Um, in terms of where we're at, I know that you know there will always be people who say, oh, neither of them are right, you know, for various reasons. But equally, I'm seeing a lot of people coming out strongly in support of one candidate or the other. So, you know, I think both are very talented people. Both have got lots of experience in government. And I'm sure either would do a good job. 
There's some absolutely astonishing stuff in Snakes and Ladders, particularly about horrible fallings out, bitter recriminations, former friends who accused you of all manner of things. And then there was John Burkow, the speaker who you describe as capricious as any Roman emperor, actually called you a stupid woman. Looking back now, can you believe how unpleasant it was? I mean, it was a torrid time, that two years as leader of the Commons in a hung parliament trying to get Brexit done with, and we just didn't have a majority. And, you know, it was therefore impossible. And with a Remainer, a sort of openly Remainer speaker, you know, rule number one, never let people know which side of the fence you're on. It was challenging. And when you add to it his his personality and his behaviour, both in the chamber and outside the chamber, I just couldn't believe how, how he would behave. But, you know, I think the world sees it now. You know, so many conventions were broken. In fact, at the back of the book, we've put together the whole story of the legislative timetable, which I read through it and I'm like, wow, I can't believe that that's what we went through. But for any student of politics, you know, it makes for extraordinary reading. Something that comes across in the book a bit more peripherally, but it's very interesting, is you go from job to job, but you talk, Andrea, about going in and then... You meet this new set of civil servants who are basically running on their own sort of timetable, their own, you know, they've got their own reporting lines, they've got their own agenda. Do you think it would be better for the country if we had the American system where you as a Conservative minister had your own appointees to do that work rather than working with people who aren't particularly interested in delivering the government's agenda? That is a really interesting question. And I would say the answer to that is partially yes. I have the greatest regard for civil servants. I honestly do believe that they are doing the best they can. I think they're far too hierarchical. There are far too many cooks spoiling the broth inadvertently. So the sign-off process means everything gets delayed and it gets watered down in the process because you're sort of going cross departments and everyone's sticking their oar in. But that's not that they're doing that deliberately, that they're absolutely doing the best they can. And I think private offices are always backing up their, their minister as much as they humanly can. So what I would say is I actually do believe that certain key top jobs should actually change when the prime minister changes to set the direction. Because I do think that the civil service is such a huge and unwieldy, massive, massive numbers of people that it is quite difficult just from a pure communications point of view to really set a new direction fast enough. And I think that is the problem with a great big organisation. So I do think if you change the people at the top at uh, director general level and above, then actually, if they were sort of political appointees and briefed properly to fulfil the prime minister's objectives, that would be a good idea. I also do believe that we should reduce numbers in the civil service because I actually think decision making would be far swifter. I know that you've been passionate about one of my strong things, working motherhood. And I think my absolute favourite story in this book, amongst the many absolutely crazy stories in this book, Andrew Ledson, you were hoping to be picked as Tory candidate for Reading West in 2003. And the night before the final round of selection, you went into Labour. That's Labour giving birth, not Labour the party. (laughs) So after a few hours rest... (laughs) 
And with Charlotte in your arms, well done, welcome to the world, Charlotte. This is your mad mother. You then went and stood before the association membership committee and you told them that you had given birth that very morning. What were those men and women thinking when you said that? Well, of course, I was sort of on cloud nine, as you are when you've just had a baby. And I, I thought this was perfectly fine. Nothing, nothing to see here. <laughs> and of course, the older people in the audience were all fiddling with their hearing aids thinking, oh, did I just hear that right? <laughs> and then, of course, those who, that weren't thinking they'd heard me wrong were thinking, well, she's completely bonkers then. So I wasn't selected that night. And that was no doubt for the best. That was my Top Gun story. And I love it. And Charlotte loves it, actually. She's now 18 and a half. She can just about tell that story and laugh now rather than thinking her mother is a complete nutter. You know, you came from this humble background from the age of 13. You knew you wanted to be a politician. You haven't been a particularly tribal Tory. You say in the book, I've been telling my family for years that I wanted to be the first female Chancellor of the Exchequer, but it seemed unlikely looking at all those old Etonians and public schoolboys in government that someone like me would ever get there. Do you you still feel that? Oh, do I still feel that? I think there's an element of that. I mean, the fact that we've had, you know, two female prime ministers, we could have a third. Still, we've had no female chancellor of the Exchequer. There is something about that job. It's an old boy's job. I certainly think that misogyny plays a big part in social media and in the mainstream media where, you know, I and, you know, lots of female colleagues really frustratingly get called sort of airheads and not knowing what we're talking about. And, you know, I was um, had a lovely conversation with Mervyn King the other day. And it was just to me, it's such an honour and a privilege to speak to an ex-Bank of England governor and to fully understand exactly what he's talking about, to have opinions of my own, to feel able to challenge him on some of his. And yet nobody thinks that realistically that I or a woman, as so far, could be Chancellor of the Exchequer. That is an issue of sadness for me, definitely. I'm sure we'll get there. I'm confident we'll get there. Well, I still hope that we're in with the chance of Andrea Leadsome. Let me just finish by recommending strongly to listeners Snakes and Ladders, a, an often jaw-dropping book about this terrible world in which you've chosen to make your career. I have to say that d- what shines through the pages, despite all the dark arts, the awfulness, some of which we're witnessing at the moment, is your belief, your personal belief in making a difference. What would you say to any young person now thinking about going into politics? That's what it's all about. You know, if I sort of think about, oh, I'm sick of it, what shall I do instead? There is nothing and nowhere where you can make such a positive difference. And whether it's for a constituent whose mum needs a hip operation or who is struggling with a visa all the way up to giving every baby the best start for life, to dealing with injustice. There is no better job. So I would say go for it. In spite of it all, go for it. And can I just finish by asking, do you think we might see a Penny Mordaunt comeback? What do you think? I really hope so. I'd love to see it, definitely. Andrea Ledson, thank you so much for talking to Planet Normal. Thanks, Alison. Interesting stuff there, co-pilot, and eye-catching or ear-catching that she thinks Penny Morden could come back and have another crack at it. Yes, I think that they're 
sort of biding their time. They've obviously got this strong caucus in Parliament. They've got about a third of the parliamentary vote. You never know, Liam, do you? We just don't know at the moment things are in flux. I mean, I really love talking to her. It's quite interesting that some of our producers who were listening to her were sort of saying, why can't someone like that be the Prime Minister? And I guess that's the $6 billion question, isn't it? I thought... It was intriguing to me to think, to look back on that period in 2016 when she, Andrea, did fall victim to a media hit job from an outlet that didn't want a Brexiteer prime minister. And it does make you wonder, co-pilot, doesn't it, if we had had Andrea in number 10 instead of Theresa May. Look, we got there in the end, but things could have been done quicker and better, couldn't they? If you'd like to read Andrea Leadsom's Snakes and Ladders, you can find all the details of the book in our show notes. And now it's on to our listener emails, the fantastic messages which you send in to us. Here's a lovely one, co-pilot from Hannah. Dear Alison and Liam, it's been a very stressful couple of weeks. My Thursday soothing podcast has been off air. I've started a new job in the middle of a heat wave. I've had to go to the optician and get new glasses, very focal, so I now feel middle-aged. And don't get me started on the contact lenses. I don't want to squint my way around Sainsbury's Chiswick with a mask on ever again. I couldn't even recognise <laughs> Jeremy Vine when he walked past me. That may be a benefit, Hannah. So I'm now <laughs> learning the joy of multifocal lenses. Anyway, the point is, on Thursday morning, when your podcast goes out, it is my birthday. I will, hopefully, be sat on a plane listening to you both on my way to Rome. My birthday present. It would be lovely to get a shout out for my birthday and obviously a rare as rocking horse poo mug. Thanks and carry on doing what you are both doing. It makes a real difference. Well, happy birthday, Hannah. Happy birthday, say co-pilot. Happy birthday, Hannah. I hope you're flying to Rome and I hope you have a nice (laughs) time when you get there. This is from Justine, dear Alison and Liam. I'm fairly new to your show, but look forward, like so many others, to your weekly dose of sanity and sense. My dream team to lead this country out of its woes would be Charles Moore for Prime Minister, Liam for Chancellor, Alison for Health, Kate Hoey for Brexit and Foreign Affairs, plus a role for Baroness Claire Fox. She could help shore up the crumbling red wall. It's a shame Kemi Badenoch didn't make it further in the leadership contest. I really hope she gets awarded a decent role in the new administration. And says Justine, I'd like to see John Redwood more visible. Such a clever, economically literate man. Perhaps he could return to your show in the future. It's a relief to hear reasoned arguments about such vital issues as Brexit, net zero, housing and the NHS. Covid and these awful culture wars, a real antidote to the lefty builds we get from the BBC and so many of our so-called <laughs> elites. I recommend your podcast to my friends and it cheers me up no end while driving to and from Cardiff and Devon, where I split my time for work. Please keep going and give the silent, suffering majority hope. All the best from Justine. And this is from Dennis. Time to calm down, crew. Yes, we should have had Kemi, but at least we didn't have Penny, who would have been a disaster and have been even worse than the Lord of Misrule, though he's tipped to go to disrupt NATO. But we do have Liz. She's backed by some sensible people and has two years to get things tidied up after the chaos of the last three and put into place some of the Conservative policies 
we were promised. I've been getting a bit of a spanking co-pilot from quite a lot of the listeners and readers who don't share my enthusiasm for Penny Morden, although I do hope I've helped to explain that a bit more today. But we have had a huge number of, of emails and responses this week on the subject of the Tory leadership battle. Margaret says, neither Trust nor Sunak could win a raffle, much less a general election. Bad <laughs> times lie ahead, I'm afraid. And Nick says, this is very typical of many people, Liam. Nick says, it's a pretty uninspiring choice we've got. That we can all agree. But unfortunately, I think trust is the best bet we've got right now. Unlike you, Alison, I couldn't ignore the alarming red flags stacking up around Penny Mordant. Frankly, if it had just been the trans nonsense, I could probably have let it go. Far more alarming were the questions over her general competence and work ethic. Sam familiar? Quite. We could do without another Boris right now. Thank you. Kemi is the future, but she isn't ready yet. Surely she'll get a big cabinet job shortly. And if she proves her mettle, she should be a shoe in next time. And like Thatcher in the late 70s, she'll likely have a chance to build her vision for the country and present it to the public from the opposition benches. But you know what? That doesn't even bother me anymore. Let's face it, how could Labour and the SNP really make the economy much worse than this lot have already made it? As for the prospect of Indy Ref 2 and Scotland breaking away, I honestly couldn't care less. In fact, I've long been of the view they should give England a vote on it and I think we'd overwhelmingly tell them to sling their hook. If the trade-off is we get a Tory leader who gets a chance to plan and then deliver big time like Thatcher did, it's a price worth paying. Blair was the same for Labour. Successful prime ministers generally get a bedding in period in opposition rather than being sent immediately in to fight fires and avert crises. Kemi Badenoch could be the next one. Interesting point, Nick. Such thoughtful Planet Normal listeners we have, Alison. And on the subject of thoughtful, this one's from Sue. Dear Alison and Liam, have you ever watched that South Park episode? You know, the American cartoon series. Have you ever watched that South Park episode, says Sue, where the two kids have to choose a new school mascot? They have two choices only, despite the wish of the children to choose something more appropriate. And the two choices are a turd sandwich and a giant douche. <laughs> the children are dismayed. And the moral of the story is that in life, every election is only ever a choice between a turd <laughs> sandwich and a giant douche. How very true. Kind regards, Sue. That's brilliant, Sue. We're not going to speculate on which whether Trust or Sunak is the, the douche or the, the poo. Um, so that's it from Planet Normal for another week. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views, email of the week is going to be my turn, Halligan, and we have to give it, I think, to Hannah, whose birthday it is. So happy birthday, Hannah, and we will be sending you a rare as rocking horse poo mug just to email us at Planet Normal and give us your full address, please. And on that frankly scatological <laughs> bombshell... <laughs> As we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett and our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.